This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by the Messy Spirituality Podcast. Hey, this is Jason Elam. Join Lola Robbins, Kyle Butler, and me for the Messy Spirituality Podcast, where we try to empower your spiritual evolution with honest conversation about how to be a better human, taking a critical look at toxic Bible stories, and look behind the headlines for growth opportunities underlying current events. Hey, it's a bisexual hairstylist who escaped a cult, a black mystic, and a recovering Southern Baptist preacher. What could possibly go wrong? Check out the Messy Spirituality Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. What's up, friends? Happy Friday. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. On this episode, I wanted to bring you someone who understands what the hell happened in Brazil this past Sunday. If you don't know, they essentially had their own version of the January 6th insurrection. So I brought on Joao Chavez, who is a historian of Brazil, and of course, someone who grew up in Brazil, to kind of break down what on earth happened and are there intentional connections between the US and Brazil that led to what we saw on Sunday? Spoiler alert, the answer is yes. This is a very important episode for my American audience to really listen to because we have to understand that Christian nationalism is bigger than just what's happening in America, even though American politics and Christian nationalists are directly impacting and influencing the way other people, especially other evangelicals, behave in other countries. So this episode's very important. Buckle up. Quick side note, there were some slight audio delays. I tried to edit them to make this sound a little bit uh, more like a normal conversation conversation. If you hear a delay, that's what was going on. Not sure what caused it, but I hope you enjoyed this episode. That being said, I have big, massive freaking news. Are you ready? Are you buckled up? I am doing a live in-person event with Bradley Onishi from Straight White American Jesus. I just had him on the podcast a few weeks ago and Blake Chaston from the Exvangelical podcast on what does deconstruction have to do with Christian nationalism? This is taking place Saturday. February 11th, 3.30 p.m. Eastern in Philadelphia. That's right, my Philly friends. I know a lot of you were so frustrated that I would do a podcast event in Chattanooga and not in Philly, and here I am making it up to you. You can get tickets. The link is in our bio. It's going to be a great time. And as always, friends, if you like the show, please make sure to subscribe and give us a rating and review on iTunes or Spotify. It helps us get out to other people, and as you know, we hold space for thousands of folks trying to navigate better ways forward in the Christian tradition outside of the basement of evangelical fundamentalism. If you want to donate to make this work possible, we are a nonprofit organization. You can click on the link in our show notes. All right, friends, here is my interview. I hope you enjoy it. Talk to you all next time. All right. Well, friends, uh, welcome to a special edition of the podcast. I'm releasing this Friday, January 13th. This is coming out right away. And I, I want um, to you, uh, introduce you to Dr. Joao Chavez, who is a professor of history uh, tied deeply to, to Brazil. And I, I had to bring him on. We were When, when everything happened uh, on Sunday uh, that, that we saw uh, in Brazil regarding 
you know, there, what looked like a, an insurrection of sorts. That's the best way I can frame it. I reached out and said, Hey, would you come on the podcast? And, 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 and Joel was, was so kind to do that. So thank you for coming on. I really appreciate making time. It means the world. Well, thank you. Thank you for the invitation, Tim. Uh, it's uh, it's an important topic that hits very close to home. Um, and, uh, and I'm looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Before we get into it, I do want to ask, can you just give maybe the, the audience a brief introduction? Who are you? How, how did you get into the work that you do? And also, I want to know, did you grow up in, in Christian spaces, you know, um, as a child and young adult? Mm. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, well, let me start from the beginning. I, 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 did, I, I, did, I did not grow up in a Christian home, um, became a Christian in my, in my teenage years. Um, went uh, to a to a Baptist church that was uh, uh, that had deep connections with Southern Baptist missions, um, and um, eventually came to the United States. As you mentioned, I am I am trained as a historian for my PhD, but I have a seminary degree as well, um, and um, and so I went into seminary here, uh, then to graduate school, and then after that, um, I uh, I began working uh, in. Theological education at the Hispanic Theological Initiative, where I work, uh, which is housed at the at Princeton Theological Seminary. I'm the associate director for programming there, uh, but I stay most of my uh, in-person time anyway in Austin, Texas, where I'm, uh, uh, you know, talking to you from now. Uh, I serve as the assistant professor for evangelism and of evangelism and mission at Austin. Presbyterian Theological Seminary, uh, and I, I'm a, mostly a historian of, uh, of old Christianity. As I like to say, I, I pay attention to different aspects of the of Latin American U.S. relationships, uh, particularly Brazil and the U.S. Uh, and as a matter of fact, my my latest book, The Global Mission of the Jim Crow South, uh, it, it's precisely an investigation of uh, U.S. Brazil um, engagement, looking primarily at Southern Baptist missionaries and race in in Brazil. So I, uh, uh, as I, I mentioned in the book, that that is uh, one of the uh, one of the um, one of the streams or one of some of the hands that planted, uh, you know, some of what Bolsonaro was har- harvesting, connected to this legacy, to this evangelical missionary legacy uh, that has affected Brazil in different ways, but also other countries in Latin America and the world. That is very helpful. I, I want to start by kind of giving our audience just some kind of context and awareness of, of Brazil and, and its politics, because I'm not sure if everyone's f- f- really familiar with it. How does Brazil run their 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 country? Is it similar to the U.S. as far as a president, a House, a Senate? Is it different? Can you kind of break down some of those some of those key uh, things for us? It it is very similar. Um, it, okay. It's a president. Vice president, you have you know, and then you have the Supreme Court uh, that functions similarly, and also Congress and the Senate. So uh, at a, at the state, and then as a, at a a national level. So uh, um, the, it it is a pretty similar uh, setting. Uh, although, uh, as we perhaps will, will go into it later, it is important to mention that uh, the democratic institutions of Brazil are are, are not as stable. As the ones in the in, in in the U.S. used to be, but still are a lot more stable. Brazil uh, redemocratized in the mid 1980s. So I was born into the, the dictatorship, the last stages of the Brazilian dictatorship. I'm a 1980s baby, 
Um, and, um, uh, I mean, so, uh, so many of us can still remember aspects of the dictatorship, um, it, it, that, uh, that again, then transitioned into, uh, a, a, um, a kind of a transitional phase before full redemocratization of the country. Uh, so, uh, uh, the, the stability of these institutions historically um, are are not as uh, solid as in some other as in some other democratic countries like the U.S. Okay, that is helpful to know. So you mentioned uh, a little while ago that that there are connections between the U.S. and particularly Brazil. They they, they have connections there. Can you maybe just give a, a few bullet points that are, are, are noteworthy for our conversation of how the U.S. and Brazil are linked uh, politically and maybe even economically? Mm-hmm. No, thank you. Uh, well, it is, uh, there, there are many links to be traced out there. Uh, I, will, I will begin primarily like bringing perhaps uh, f- focusing on uh, the, the, the religious networks connections there. So uh, uh, Brazil is a much older kind of, uh, oh, I should say it's an older country in some significant ways. Um, but uh, one, uh, one of the things that, um, that has connected these streams of, uh, of, of different religious networks and stories began really in the, in the 19th century. Uh, when, uh, when, a number of, uh, of evangelical missionaries or U.S. missionaries go to Brazil. Uh, that, that number increases significantly after the Civil War, uh, especially because uh, the, the Confederate exiles who went to Brazil, Brazil remained a slaveholding country until 1888, so 23 years after the end of the Civil War. So there was a large Confederate exodus uh, to Brazil, uh, and some uh, Presbyterian, Methodist, and Baptist churches start began in um, in in other places, but also in Confederate colonies, uh, and uh, lots of missionaries uh, were um, and have strong connections to those um, to those uh, southern migrations that happened there in Brazil. One uh, major example. And is major because numerically is the largest Protestant denomination today in the United States, which is the Southern Baptist Convention. And Baptist is the second, although Pentecostals are overwhelmingly the majority in Brazil, the second uh, denominate, largest denomination in Brazil, or denominational identification anyway, is Baptist, second to the Assemblies of God. Uh, and and that, that connection really continues uh, from when the sustainable phase of Baptist missions began in these Confederate colonies, um, all the way up to all the way up to today. Uh, and um, not all streams of evangelicalism or, or religious networks follow that trajectory, um, but there is a strong connection there. We can mention a few of those. Uh, in terms of the in terms of the country in general, um, the, the U.S. and Brazil. Um, have uh, had, again, some uh, strong historical connections. Um, but I will want to highlight particularly the second half of the 20th century uh, because uh, especially uh, in light of the U.S.'s role in the Second World War and its, uh, in its um, concerns with communism, uh, Brazil became a, became a, a, a focus. And the U.S. invested quite, uh, quite, 
aggressively on what one historian uh, called Antonio Toto called the seduction of Brazil, um, the largest country by in in, uh, in Latin America. For those who are not familiar uh, with uh, with Br Brazil in relationship to other countries, Brazil is fi uh, roughly fifty percent of the area and the population of South America. Uh, and, uh, and 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 so it was a key place um, for the United States in the sense that it need in, for to have significant influence in the area. It must have influence in Brazil. It is one of the, the strongest economies in the region as well. Uh, so, uh, but using using you know, um, cinema and, and music and film and other means and and and. Uh, in cultural, in cultural and politics, the U.S. invested quite, again, aggressively in seducing Brazil into becoming a pro, a pro -America, explicitly pro-American country. And that has worked in general, in the country in general, uh, but amongst uh, evangelicals and Protestants. And we use this word interchangeably in Brazil, evangelicals and Protestant is almost synonym. So that might be an important qualification there. Uh, right. Uh, that, that, that is a... a uh, um, uh, sustained admiration that, that is that is part of this uh, project of seducing Brazil in general, but particularly also strengthened by the continuing networks of uh, of evangelicals uh, that uh, that have have a few pillars, and I can mention some more of that if that is if that comes up in our conversation. Okay, wow, yeah, that's really helpful to know. Um, you know, I'm thinking about. So I, I grew up um, in more reformed um, conservative evangelical spaces, but as a drummer, I, I found myself pretty fluent in the more charismatic spaces that evangelicalism has to offer. And um, and I remember a few years ago there was a big thing in Brazil called the Send. It was a it was held in a stadium. There was massive worship leaders there. Jeremy Riddle was one of them. Um, it was a, a major kind of revival vibe. I think Francis Chan spoke a bunch. Of, I think I even think if I'm not mistaken, Benny Hinn spoke as well. Um, is, is is that you mentioned how how Pentecostals are the overwhelming majority uh, in Brazil? Is, is that kind of the, the culture that we're talking about? That kind of like. I'm not going to say prosperity gospel, but that more charismatic Bethel kind of world prophetic is that is that kind of the the dominant flavor of Christianity in Brazil? Not of Christianity, if you consider that is is radically changing. But uh, but we still have today, in terms of numbers, about a little bit over thirty percent thirty percent of the population is Protestant or evangelical. The majority of those being Pentecostal, but then. Half of the population is Catholic. Um, lots of those Catholics are charismatic Catholics, right? So it's a, a there is a complex scenario there, uh, but it's, it is it is certainly the largest manifestations within evangelicalism or within Protestantism is that that charismatic uh, flavor uh, that that you mentioned. Although that yeah, so but that transcends denominational affiliation too, right? So there there are some churches that yes. are not. Uh, uh, Pentecostal, but they do adopt those kinds of uh, of, uh, of worship preferences and and and, uh, and, and liturgical and and, and, uh, and uh, ecclesial practices, but do not necessarily self-identify as Pentecostal. So 
Um, the, the, all of that to say that that form is really popular. It's certainly the most popular kind of a form in terms of, of worship style within evangelicalism. Okay, so um, I've noticed that here in the States, that particular culture, especially since since Trump in 2016 and, and even before, but really with Trump, tends to really have this other layer of a, of a very specific political outlook uh, that's kind of attached to it. And again, Trump really exploded this with, with people like Paula White in the White House and this whole prophetic world that, you know, God has ordained Trump. Is 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 it a similar kind of vibe? Maybe maybe it, it, it presents differently, but with those charismatics that you're talking about, that that it sounds like from what you're telling me, a lot of what we have we kind of exported over to Brazil. Did did those kind of political leanings come with it in Brazil and get attached in that way, or is there a different current uh, running uh, in those spaces? Yeah. So that, that, uh, let me let me go back a little bit chronologically to get to it. Because it, it might seem for right. the it, it might seem for the uh, kind of a, a person just looking at this that this is surprising or this just started, uh, right? Or it's, it's fairly recent. But it's important to note that uh, yeah, w- what has or a part of or a significant part of what has what has sustained these connections. Um, it, it, it follows a, a few um, a, a few trajectories. One is theological education. Many of the institutions of theological education in Brazil uh, that were successful, the most successful and influential ones, um, were controlled by U.S. evangelical um, dispositions and institutions and people in a f- couple of different ways. One is that lots of this prof- of the pro- er, in the early stages, lots or most of the professors were U.S. evangelical missionaries. Right, and here I'm talking about hmm. about uh, you know the the what we call historic denominations: Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterians. Um, evangelical growth is a it, it's a post half 20th century phenomena more specifically, uh, but these foundations of theological education that start earlier also affect uh, those who end up going in a, in, a, in a Pentecostal direction. So it's important to mention that. Um, so we have that, that, that uh, those institutions that mediate these transnational dispositions, right? Or, or, or the importation, to use the word uh, that you use, of, of U.S. or dispositions that that are born out of the U.S. context. Another uh, another one is the literature. Even today, the best-selling books in Brazil amongst evangelicals is translated literature from from the U.S. evangelical world. So, if you look at top-selling books, you'll find names like John Piper, for example, uh, right, or um, Joe MacArthur. Um, or uh, uh, one of the, I was in Brazil not too long ago talking about people who are looking for or, or seeking ordination. Uh, and even if they read something different in the seminary, they had to learn Wayne Grudem's systematic theology uh, to pass the, to wow. pass the uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the churches uh, or their particular churches uh, questioning for the, the, the pastoral ordination process. Uh, and, and, but with that, and not only talking about the books for the training of ministers, but also the denomination periodicals, the, or, the, or even the non-denominational periodicals that helped 
consolidate and crystallize and develop uh, evangelical identity in Brazil. So if you look at those periodicals, and I have looked at them, uh, it's pretty interesting to notice uh, that you see not, the periodicals not only talk about doctrinal, doctrinal things, right? They don't only talk about the Trinity, although they do. They don't not only talk about the nature of Jesus Christ, although they do, but they also provide um, uh, interpretations of perspectives in world history, in the in the uh, development of society, um, opinions on culture. There's a host of, uh, of of things happening and, and of different kinds of dispositions being expressed in this in these periodicals, uh, and. Uh, uh, and so you will find, for example, uh, in evangelical periodicals during the U.S. Prohibition era, campaigns to to uh, to uh, implement prohibition in Brazil. Right. So uh, you will mm. you will find in the during the Scopes trial anti-evolution propaganda in Portuguese in our periodicals. Um, and, and during the Brazilian dictatorship, you see uh, you know as um, uh, many many um, uh, articles in periodicals also uh, looking at at that through a through a positive light because of uh, you know the, the, this uh, the rhetoric of anti-communism or red scare that you saw in the US but they are also implemented via these different means in Brazilian society so there is really a trajectory here that is a uh, there are institutions and uh, and and, and uh, materials that uh, have built and nurtured these connections uh, through through different means what evangelicals in Brazil did not have until uh, or it didn't become clear that they had until after the dictatorship uh, goes and Brazil redemocratizes was numbers to have political influence. But that changed in the 80s. Although the, when, when in, uh, in uh, 1986, when, um, when the legislature in Brazil, or the Constituent Assembly, uh, you know, happened for their redemocratization, already 32 evangelical Congress people took office. And, it just, and the evangelical caucus just grew from there uh, and, and just last year in 2020, uh, it, it, it grew to uh, about 115 Congress people and senators. So, which kind of reflects the 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 and the fact that uh, um, now the numbers are there to back up the aspirations that were in a way always latent in evangelical imagination, especially in those streams of Brazilian evangelicalism that has this have the strongest connections. To uh, to the United States, um, so uh, the music, the gospel music industry. I mean, I can go on uh, and uh, and mention these different ways in which these connections have been there, have been nurtured, and continue. So uh, it, it's it's in a way um, shocking, but not necessarily unexpected uh, that you see these overlapping interests and commitments uh, between U.S. and Brazilian evangelicals. Let's take a short break, and when we get back, I'm going to ask you a question about what are these uh, Brazilian evangelicals advocating for in Brazil politically? So let's stay, uh, hang tight for a second. We'll come right back. For the Millers, movie nights were once tradition. Now Sarah could hardly get through the opening credits, not on that old couch. 
But one day while shopping on QVC.com, she learned Lazy Boy recliners had slimmed down a bit. And in just a few clicks, Sarah got her Lazy Boy chair and a popcorn maker and a soundbar by Bose. And with one quick trip to QVC.com, Movie Night and Sarah's Back were saved. Shop QVC.com slash podcast and use code QVC20podcast for $20 off $40 for new customers. This is shopping brought to life. Yeah, you know, what I'm wondering is, again, I think about my own context. I can I can tell you pretty clearly, and pr- you, can probably, you can probably even tell me better than I could, what American evangelicals are advocating for, you know, generally speaking, in my cultural moment. Um, in, in Brazil, what are these um, evangelicals who you said, they, they got a lot of political influence in the 80s, and they kind of grew, um, you know, in, in their numbers. What, what kind of policies are they advocating for in Brazil? I mean, does Brazil even have what I might call culture war issues? You know, um, like wearing a mask is tyranny. That was a big thing for us in, in, in the States. Or, um, you know, um, uh, gay rights um, are somehow going to destroy America because that's Marxism. Is Are there threads of that in Brazil as well? Or is that just like a uniquely American problem? It, 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 you can keep on going into abortion and I'm just going to be shaking my head here and say, yes, that's the same thing there. Same thing wow. there. Right? Uh, wow. So, um, so, so it's, so, so these, uh, these, these are the issues, right? Uh, it's uh, socialism or communism, um, homosexuality, or LGBTQ rights. Uh, that is a, uh, 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 strongly contentious, contentious issues. One could argue that Bolsonaro, the Bolsonaro, uh, in many ways, rose on the wave of anti-LGBTQ plus uh, rhetoric. Um, the, 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 I mean, the, the issue of uh, the issue of abortion. Uh, it, it, it's been since um, before the Dilma administration. You know, Dilma Rousseff ha, you know, ha, has been an issue uh, that uh, that has been there. Um, so we, you have basically the same kind of concerns and the same um, reactionary right-wing, what I would call right-wing politics uh, reactions against, political reactions against uh, politics of inclusion, re- issues of race, our contentions, which is in some ways um, very interesting because Brazil is the, depending on how you look at race, Brazil is second only to Nigeria in the, in the number of, of black people because it received over 40% of the, of enslaved people, because, you know, of enslaved people. It's, not, it's a thoroughly white supremacist country. Now, it, it, it does, uh, racism manifests itself a little differently there. Um, but, but nevertheless, the white supremacist dispositions that you see in the U.S., um, have have you know similar manifestations among Brazilian elites. Um, so you, you you do have uh, you know, streams of that there as well. Um, issues of uh, of, uh, of women rights. You can go down the list and uh, what become contentious issues in the culture wars here. You see versions of them there. Um. Break down for me, for us, if you will. Um, 
Are we talking about po- politically? Is it you know again our our context is it, my context is America, so I think Republican Democrat. I kind of have a vibe of where they stand right now. Is that what we're talking about in Brazil? Is is it is it is there a right wing and a left wing? Is, is there a third? Is there an, an, another party in in Brazil that also has a lot of sway? What are the politics? broken up, you know, in Brazil, what, what, are there just two big parties? Are there three? How does that, how does that work? No, there there are many parties, um, not, not just two, uh, although as the political, uh, kind of, um, it's in, in the sense that as the, um, uh, political processes or election processes, uh, develop, uh, power tends to bifurcate, right? Between, uh, between one party and the other, and then each forming coalitions among the other parties uh, to form an official kind of governmental stream and an opposition stream. So, so it ends up working in, in practice very similarly in the sense that, uh, you know, whoever get, gets the, the party that gets the power gets uh, the group of other parties in coalitions to be with or against them. Um, but, but, there, but there are many many parties uh, in the in the political processes and, uh, and so in that sense it, it complexifies a little more um, but then what happens then at, at the end of our elections to talk about presidential elections particularly perhaps uh, those who followed will remember that uh, the if nobody gets 51 percent of the votes or, or you know more than 50 percent of the votes then we have a second round with the two most voted candidates. So uh, is what happened in Brazil, where no one got a, that clear kind of majority on the first round because there were several people running from different parties. But then because Lula and Bolsonaro were the top two overwhelmingly, then you have a second round and the other parties will declare allegiance to one side or the other. And then at that point, uh, you're talking about, you know, uh, uh, two parties and their coalitions. Okay. Um, that's really helpful. So I, I want to just kind of give a big picture recap of what I heard you say, and then we're going to kind of move into what happened more recently and some of the layers there. Essentially what I'm hearing, and please correct me if I say any of this incorrectly or if I misstate it, I don't want to be inaccurate, but essentially um, Brazil has a, it sounds like a pretty heavy influence of really the, the slaveholder South uh, that has influenced a lot of uh, Brazil's culture. And we can look and really see a, a pretty strong American evangelical surge of, of influence in institutions and in, in, in the theology and in the education that really has given what almost sounds like in a lot of ways, a slightly distorted mirror version of the U S and Brazil, as far as how they share certain, um, you know, religious culture, uh, regarding the Christian tradition. And also that spills over into politics. And we're, and so we're seeing a lot of, uh, very similar culture war talking points here being again, maybe it, There are some differences and nuances, but the same idea of those culture war points becoming very big points in Brazil as well. Did I kind of condense a lot of this somewhat accurately? Yeah, that's that's right. As a matter of fact, those sociologists who have called Brazil and the United States precisely the word you use, distorted mirror images of each other, Uh, it it is very much so. Um, I, I would say, though, that that is, I'll just add one one little nuance from what you said. Uh, you talk about the slave the slaveholding South. Like we Brazil was slaveholding for longer, uh, but 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 that is but but that is a, uh, a a connection there. 
not only the slave holding South, but what happens with the South then becoming a Jim Crow, uh, you know, uh, U.S. South, and then, you know, with its uh, lost cause mythology and the different kind of interpretations, stimulus interpretation of what the Civil War meant. It was very influential in the U.S. He certainly crossed over via some of those structures that I meant, right? So missionary um, activity, theological education, publication, and that. Uh, to, and I'll give you one example to just reinforce that point. Uh, all the way up to the 1950s, you see missionaries publishing in Portuguese praises for Robert E. Lee, right? So uh, uh, I'm not talking about particularly Baptist missionaries here, uh, so the second most successful denomination in some ways. Uh, but uh, but that particular that particular missionary, for example, was a it was key for the for the beginning of the char charismatic stream within Baptist life that gave rise to a most successful gospel um, 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 gospel uh, a group or, or gospel music uh, a group in Brazil, which is the the Lagoinha Baptist Church which housed Bolsonaro and Michele, his wife, who went there several times to campaign. Right? So we see those connections there very clearly. Hmm. Okay. Thank you for sharing and updating me on, on that. that. That's important. Okay. So let's, let's kind of bring it to a little more of, of current events. So my understanding is that Brazil recently had, well, somewhat recently had elections and there was a re um you know, a, a re-election kind of process, similar to I think what happened with Herschel Walker uh, in Georgia, where they, they there was not a majority, so they had to do a, a re-vote essentially. And 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 there were two candidates, right, Bolsonaro, and then uh, this this person named Lula. Now, is that kind of like is Bolsonaro the the the, the Republican candidate and Lula is the Democrat candidate? Is is that is that kind of the the politics we have here? Can you tell me a little bit about Lula, just so we have some context? Yeah, so so Lula, uh, it, it's the um, again it has been the head of the Workers Party for a long time. Uh, he is um, uh, very much a progressive politically, um, and um, in, in the you well, I I think you think a little more progressive than a regular Democrat. So uh, so perhaps if you look at the Democratic. Uh, uh, the democratic spectrum, he'll be in a little more left side of that, uh, has been about president of Brazil um, twice, right? He was president and, and then he was reelected. Uh, Brazil was very strong economically. He implemented strong policies of, uh, of uh, I mean, social policies, but also um, was uh, investing the economy in creative ways. Brazil uh, was doing well economically there. After him, uh, the person who got elect elected, Dilma Rousseff, was uh, his successor in the Workers' Party. She, she got elected. Uh, there were some corruption scandals connected to the Workers' Party and some other things that happened during Dilma's government. She was impeached. Um, and then, mm. and then uh, we have uh, some, there were some investigations that happened, uh, particularly one um, one um, one uh, a project uh, from the for, 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 through these investigations called uh, the the Lava Jato or car wash um, operation uh, and the, the the federal judge that uh, that uh, led that operation uh, condemned Lula to prison 
and this is an important point because uh, that I'll mention just a minute because uh, um, Lula came back to run again, and he and, and polls would have would uh, suggested that even from prison he would have beat Bolsonaro. Uh, but the, but the, wow. the but the, the Brazilian justice some few people in the Brazilian justice system were able to uh, to keep Lula from running, and really within a couple of weeks of the election there was a uh, there was a candidate from the Workers Party uh, that uh, Fernando Haddad who went up he ended up losing to Bolsonaro. Bolsonaro won the election and then he appointed the judge that condemned Lula as his minister of justice. Right. So uh, which is uh, some people speculate that that judge wanted an appointment to the Supreme Court, uh, but ended up not getting. So it certainly questions not only the process by which Lula ended up going to jail, but also uh, the the, uh, uh, you know, uh, um, impartiality of a judge who condemned the person who would win the election. Uh, and then gets appointed by the president who won because of the condemnation, right? Uh, yeah. But then Lula um, ends up being freed, um, as um, as the the um, you know some discussions about his condemnation and condemnation went on. He ended up being released, ran again, and then won. So Lula could not have run the third time. Uh, in for Brazil, can only be reelected once. And that's why he, I would assume that's why he appointed Dilma, who was elected, impeached. Bolsonaro came after that, and then again, Lula came again. Um, and uh, clearly uh, is, uh, is uh, someone who, has, who, who sees the importance of evangelical growth and, and wants to continue to nurture a relationship between the government and evangelicals in general, but particularly the, the minority of progressive evangelicals who do support uh, the, the more progressive policies of the Workers' Party. Um, so uh, that's, that's, uh, that, that's it. And I, uh, hopefully I go in the direction you wanted to, but that I can say a little more, but that's it in a nutshell. Well, that, no, that, that's really helpful because, again, you know, so many of us listening just don't have a context, right? And, and we just see media and we see clips and we're trying to put pieces together. And these things are complicated. Like, there's just no way around it. The world's a complicated place. And and if we can give nuance and, and context to this discussion, that only helps us understand what's going on and also being truthful, right? I mean, that's the whole point. So, obviously, what we all saw on Sunday, you know, for me, right away, I, I, I saw – People in Brazil storming the capital. It was it was violent. They were you know destroying windows. They were inside, uh, sitting in what looked to be like almost their 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 chambers uh, of Congress or the Senate, if you will. And I had immediate. I mean, I was like, oh my gosh, like I've seen this before. Uh, just swap out the location and 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 the colors that I'm seeing. And uh, this is what happened to us uh, a, f- a few years ago, right? Where where people stormed the Capitol building. And for Americans, it was this belief that the election was stolen and and Donald Trump is the true you know rightful president and and the vice president needs to certify the election and he didn't or he needs to overturn the election and he didn't so we have to hang him and we have to take back America that that was the motivation that we saw along with a lot of Christian uh, symbolism uh, making this a very spiritual thing and, and I'm gonna also here just drop 
for the audience, if you have not listened to Straight White Americans Jesus uh, Straight White America uh, Jesus podcast, the six part series on the New Apostolic uh, re- Reform Movement and their their um, uh, complicity and so much of that, you need to because there's so much more that happened behind the scenes. Um, so that's what happened on, on our end. But for you watching what happened on Sunday, I mean. Did you see and hear similar themes? Was the whole reason this happened very different? Were, are, are there some similarities here? Why why did they storm their own you know government offices? What were they trying to do? Give us some insight. I would love to hear it. All right. So the, thank you for the question. Let me say a couple of things before I get to that. That might be relevant. On January the 6th, well, I'll go back before that. Steve Bannon was a advisor of the Bolsonaro, of Bolsonaro. And and his politician sons. So the Steve Bannon. Um, if uh, if, the, if the listeners look up, uh, you know maybe Steve Bannon Bolsonaro on, on YouTube or on uh, um, places like that, you will see him saying after uh, you know uh, Trump lost. Uh, I think this is a fairly recent interview when he says that he thinks Bolsonaro can do much more in Brazil than Trump could do here. So after you no know, Trump lost, he said so. Uh, he was, he was involved in that. There were others, uh, advisors, that were directly involved. Bolsonaro came and visit, visited Trump a few times. One of his sons was in Washington, D.C., wearing a MAGA hat during the insurrection on January the 6th. So um, uh, th- that, uh, th- that th- it, th- there is a connection there that it's undeniable. Um, and all of the above to what you said, I, I will say that a major distinction is that the the you know the the government buildings in Brazil, the the Senate, Congress chambers, the presidential palace were invaded when the new president was already there, right? Uh, whereas here, Trump, um, you know, uh, the, the the transition of power hasn't happened yet. Um, but the but if but if you can see the 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 overlaps in the, in, of the story, they are they are taking place from the same playbook. Bolsonaro did not give. No, the presidential, uh, he wasn't there for the transition. He doesn't, he doesn't, uh, he, he wasn't there to, uh, to see Lula into his term, just like uh, Trump did not show up on Biden's inauguration. As a matter of fact, Bolsonaro flew to the U.S. He's in Florida right now, has been. He flew in the last day, uh, last couple of days, I want to say, uh, or either the very last day of his term, uh, and hasn't been to Brazil since uh, the power transitioned to uh, to uh, to Lula. The Lula became uh, you know you know Lula was inaugurated. Uh, so uh, you can see the overlaps there. And then uh, since Lula won the elections, since before, right? You say and you see Lula. I mean, you saw Trump saying it here too. Before the election, both of them were already talking about corruption in the polls. Right, uh, so, uh, so Bolsonaro was not different. The uh, the uh, the disposition to overturn the election in Brazil, um, it, it was uh, you know the, the, what happened there though is that a lot of conservatives won, and in Brazil the electoral system is a little bit different. is uh, is electronic. We know who won really quickly, um, and uh, the the were. Uh, concerns by other Bolsonaro supporters that if they, the, who, who had won the election, that if they went 
giving blanket statements that the system is corrupt, they will not be invalidating, uh, you know, Bolsonaro's loss, but they will also be invalidating their own victory. So that might have complicated things a little bit. Uh, and, but, uh, but he never, Bolsonaro never really conceded. Um, and, uh, and, uh, the, 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 there's still some to be, to be explored, uh, about this, but, uh, but the, um, the support that he could have had from other conservatives, other Bolsonaro supporters, um, uh, in, uh, in, in, in questioning the legitimacy of the election, uh, was upset by the fact that lots of his supporters won. Uh, so, um, so you have that, uh, it's hard to tell what would have been if, if, if several of them had lost at a state level, um, and, and, um, and the local levels, if he would get the coalition he needed to do something else to actually, uh, you know, be successful in trying to, uh, in trying to, uh, to annul the results. Uh, but that didn't happen. Um, but his supporters continue to say that the elections are not were not um, legitimate. Um, there were a few polls coming out. Um, I think that about a little over 60% of, um, of evangelicals um, would have that impression that the elections were not fair. Uh, about 50, 51% um, of the few preliminary polls that coming out had uh, supported the invasion of January the 8th. 71% support military intervention. Not necessarily military dictatorship, but military intervention to, uh, to uh, you know, uh, uh, change things. And the talk of corruption, which you see, uh, you know, uh, here as well uh, for many sides, it's also predominant there. Uh, the Brazilian government does have a history of corruption on all sides of things. But Bolsonaro came in as the person who was going to, to clean up corruption, and uh, and uh, that uh, that that not necessarily happened. There are some issues there that need to be fleshed out about his own involvement in uh, in, in in some uh, in, in some of that uh, of that uh, you know uh, of that dynamic. He's being involved in some things that need to be investigated. Uh, but again. I, 75% of the population, that had, you know, according to preliminary polls, were against the invasion, but then 51% of evangelicals were for it. So you can see that the, uh, the, the, the high percentage that it's, uh, it's disproportionate in relationship to the general population by far. Yeah, well, I mean, that was what we saw here on the 6th. I mean, we, we at one point, it was close to 60% of evangelicals didn't believe that the election was legitimate. Uh, we know now that the election fraud narrative has only grown uh, in America. It has not shrank. I mean, you know, for, for perspective, uh, in, in, in our last midterms, 60% of Americans had at least one election denier on the ballot. 60%. Now, luckily, most of them did not get elected. I mean, that that's that's huge, but that just shows how how rampant that that little what started out right as just oh Trump is making stuff up became this this deeply held belief that is still pushed today by organizations like Turning Point USA, which I, I actually read um, Eduardo, who is Bolsonaro's son, actually spoke at, at mm -hmm. their student. 
um, action summit last summer. Uh, right. So, so a yeah. lot of these, a lot of these, I would argue, not just conservative, but far right groups uh, seem to have a lot of uh, connections and ties uh, uh, to uh, the Bolsonaro family and maybe you know political base, and that would make sense because based on what you said earlier of that evangelical mirroring that we're seeing, it would make sense that that it's only a matter of time before a space like Brazil produces their own version of what we just went through, you know, um, a, a, a year ago with Trump, right? Um, um, uh, in their, in their moment, in their own way, which is, you know, just kind of, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure about it. I'm not sure how you felt on this past Sunday, but when I saw on January 6th, when I was watching it happen, my jaw was dropped. I, I just was like, I, uh, what is happening? And to see, and I know, there were a few pictures that came out, uh, one um, uh, of, of what happened in Brazil, one person holding a Bible on his knees. But there was also so much Christian symbolism in January 6th. It's heartbreaking, but most importantly for me, and I would love your, your input on this. You know, it's been two years since our own insurrection, and the the I would say mainly the white evangelical church in America really seems to to, to not have any sense of obligation to, to address it, to look at, at the theology that created it. Uh, they seem to really downplay it and pretend that it wasn't that big of a deal. Do you anticipate that that evangelicals in Brazil will, will, will kind of treat what happened to them the same way where it's just kind of minimized or no, it was someone else, it wasn't true Christians? Do you anticipate that or, or do you think there could be some accountability here in evangelical spaces? We have a few indications already. Uh, that uh, okay. that suggests that evangelicals are just going to kind of stick to their guns in some way. So it's kind of this double speak that we have heard from some leaders. Um, I'm mentioning here Sila Malafaya that they, he says something like, "You know, I'm against destruction of property, but the people's patience is limited." <laughs> right. So. Um, Yes. Where you say, you know, yeah, don't do it, but I understand if you do, you know, it, the, the kind of uh, um, um, unilateral condemnation for, from the evangelical camp, which granted is diverse, uh, comes mostly from those you respect. So the Alliance of Baptists, for example, in Brazil, we have an Alliance of Baptists, the progressive small group. Uh, but uh, has issued a statement, you know, um, condemning it. And um, you, 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 there's a, yeah, you know, you, you see these smaller groups that are, that are uh, uh, very, uh, um, they, they, were already, they were already progressive. They're already supporters of, of uh, but those who have lent their influence to Bolsonarismo, as you call it, or to right-wing politics, they, they have, um, you know, issued statements. Um, they uh, they they have not um, really taken responsibility in the sense that saying that oh this is uh, you know uh, we, evangelical rhetoric has a huge impact in uh, in being a part of this. Although some of them can't deny because some people who organ actually organized trips there were pastors of local churches. Right? So lots of pastors of local churches are coming up that. Uh, uh, news about them who have actually, you know, uh, led 
groups of people there. But then the major national figures, uh, they, they have not so far uh, condemned this as an anti-Christian thing in any way. Um, it, is, uh, it seems to me that, that some of it might even um, frame a government like Lula's that wants to be uh, more fair towards religious minorities and, uh, and, and want to, uh, to implement politics of, stronger politics of inclusion to LGBTQ plus peoples and on and on. Uh, my, uh, you know, present a, uh, a, a group uh, that uh, would be framed by this evangelical conservative majority as being anti-Christians themselves. This would therefore justify uh, the kind of resistance that they then organize to provide, you know, so uh, uh, that that uh, that that seems to be, you know, is early to, is, is early to tell, but it seems to be a, a very viable direction f to uh, you know, uh, taken by by many of the groups and even leaders that are involved uh, in this and that are supporters of Bolsonaro. Let me ask you this: in, in your professional opinion, as a historian, someone who who really understands, you know, all the dynamics at play here, do you think that? I, I guess what I'm asking in a more blunt and crude way, and you can please smooth this out, is is responsibility, right? Like, do you see like like the U.S. and their far right movement? as being largely responsible for what happened on the 8th? Or are there other forces that are kind of unique to Brazil that made what happened on the 8th possible? Is it a combination of both? How do you see those two forces at play that led to what happened on the 8th? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I th that's a good question. I mean, there are, cer there are certainly many levels of participations here. Um, yeah. But Brazil is a predominantly Christian country. Right. So, um, uh, and, and again, evangelical rhetoric and symbolism. I mean, not only Bibles, but there are people singing uh, characteristically, you know, evangelical worship songs inside the invaded Senate. Uh, some videos of, of folks coming up. You see folks shouting, "Brazil belongs to the Lord Jesus." Back, you know. Uh, I mean, it's, that's that's more than just a footnote in what happened. There's certainly uh, a. Uh, the, the instigation, organization, religious legitimation, and all kinds of things that come from that, from that stream. Um, but then, you know, this, this kind of radical pop, populist kind of uh, manifestations have other, uh, other, other folks. I mean, the, the demonization of, uh, of, of minoritized groups. Um, again, to mention again, the, the, the LGBTQ plus and then, um, I mean, people from Candomblé and others, I mean, it's part of this reaction, again, from the Brazilian majority. Um, the, the, there is a whole set of, a whole apparatus there, but the religious rhetoric is really uh, important and, and actual material participation is really important. I think that the way I look at these um, things happening in the U.S. in the Brazil is there really is really a transnational movement. They're really feeding from each other. They're really talking to each other. Um, they are inspiring each other. And they're working with each other. Um, and, and that has been the case for a long time. Uh, so uh, so I, I, the, the way I would approach this, especially Brazil-US 
historic relationship that, 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 that kind of opens doors in many ways for these manifestations is very much as a co-constructed transnational long-standing project uh, rather than accidents that happen here and there and they just happen to, happen to be copying each other. I mean, that is clearly intentionality, planning, and cross-pollination happening here. Um, and then I, I, if, I, if I could mention the, 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 the very helpful work of another historian, uh, Ben Cowan, who recently published a wonderful demonstration of this in a book called Moral Majorities Across the Americas, in which he singles out Brazil and the U.S. as co-constructions constructors of the religious right. Um, partially, mm. uh, partially because the Brazil during the dictatorship, which is a U.S. supported uh, conservative dictatorship, uh, very much Brazil serves as training grounds for some experiments uh, from uh, religious right wings political groups that uh, of uh, or uh, conservatively leaning political groups uh, that have uh, in, used Brazil again as a as an example and as an experiment for things that end up being implemented in the U.S. So uh, that th is predominantly U.S.-Brazil influence in this, in my opinion. But there are instances and moments in which the influence comes the other way. So, uh, so I, I would see uh, th this particular these two particular manifestations as an expression of a transnational project rather than two completely separate uh, groups doing things accidentally that just happen to look like each other. Right. Yeah. Right. Which, which would, which makes more sense. I mean, even logically, right. I mean, like you, like we both said, the symbolism is it, you swap out the color schemes, right. And, 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 and you have pretty much a, a mirror reflection of what happened here a few years ago. My last question for you, and again, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on just really last minute to have this discussion with me. It, it means the world to all of us that, that that you would lend your expertise. You know, um, what what is the path forward? I, I ask a lot of my guests uh, when, when we talk about Christian uh, nationalism, how do we move forward as people who, you know, at least for me, faithful to Jesus, that's why I walked out of so many of these spaces and I, I want to find better paths forward, and I don't want to participate in the cycles of chaos that we see. Uh, but I'm I'm concerned. You know, I mean, Steve Bannon in particular is someone who goes. He's very underreported. He's doing work in Catholic nationalist spaces. He's doing work in Hungary. I mean, this guy is all over the place uniting these nationalistic coalitions and people. I don't think they realize what's going on beneath this beneath the surface here. So, what's your recommendation? How do people who are listening? How do they help resist such violent movements? Well, yeah. I mean, th thank you for that question. I mean, it, it's that's a tough one. Because if you look at yeah. the landscape, yeah, it is. <laughs> if you look at the landscape of Christianity, the Christ Christianities that are either diminishing at a slower pace, and I'm thinking about the U.S. context in which you look across denominations they are diminishing, right? But the ones that are diminishing at the lower pace are the more conservative ones. Um, and, and and if you look at the global south, or, or step back and look at a global perspective, the one that the ones that grow are very conservative ones too so uh so if so if if uh, if it's a, a a question about the you know how do we address this 
uh, you know, and look at the demographics uh, in terms of religious affiliation. Uh, the streams of Christianity or evangelicalism that have historically encouraged and are part of this trajectory in a majority as diverse as they might be, uh, uh, by and large lean in this direction, right? Uh, so, um, uh, I mean, that which is, uh, it, it, it complicates uh, potential ans answer to this, this question. I mean, it's, uh, and, and, the, and the very mechanisms that have reinforced uh, these, uh, these uh, uh, particular groups runs through institutions that we often see as the solution, particular institutions of theological education. Right, so if you look at this, uh, at at at, uh, at at some of these, uh, these uh, historically at some of these elements and some of these groups, uh, some of the uh, of the most important leaders have been thoroughly educated, because these institutions of theological education have uh, consolidated, legitimized, and made uh, these their particular ideologies even more effective, and then networked these leaders to put them in positions where they could exercise the most power and influence, right? Because usually a very uh, common uh, answer we get is education, right? As, is, as if, let's educate. But education was part of the problem. Um, now, I mean, I, I am a professor in a seminary, so I, I believe in education. I don't want to be misunderstood here. <laughs> uh, but uh, right. but, but uh, it's not necessarily a blanket place to go to, you know? So uh, I'm, I'm uh, going on on my I don't know how to answer your question here, but, uh, but uh, I mean, I, I, I would say that whatever the answer to these transnational phenomena is, uh, needs to include a resistance that also builds transnationally. Um, and, um, and I think we have some of that, uh, but, uh, but uh, we needed we need to continue to build these transnational partnerships. Um, and, um, you know, it's, uh, the, 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 the more progressive folks within, within and outside of evangelical circles have a tendency to fragment in a way that, uh, that the more conservative side of this issue seems to be you know, not in the same way. They seem to be very consolidated ideologically. Whereas yes. folks that are more left-leaning seem to fragment very easily, or easier, I should say, be very fragmented because of different issues. So finding a way, uh, you know, to, 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 to unite within a strong uh, and, and intentional uh, resistance against these moves um, that, uh, that, that is uh, strengthened and disseminated transnationally uh, will, would be, uh, you know, very, very, very hopeful. Now, what uh, the, 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 the particular solution for, for building that and having that in place, I wish I knew that. If I knew it, I would be working on it. Yeah. But, uh, but it, is, it, is, it is definitely a tough one. It, 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 it is an urgent matter and in need of a, of a robust response. So I appreciate the question, and I think it's a question that we need to continue to ask as we hope to, uh, to, 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 uh, to as you mentioned, follow Jesus in ways that manifest justice um, broadly and socially, and that does not uh, continue to, uh, to, to, to manifest violence um, immediately and then through policies that really are, are harming people um, who are at the margins of society. 
I agree. Where can people find you? Are you on Twitter, Instagram? Where are you? I am on Twitter and on Instagram, uh, I, 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 but my proficiency with it will show up in the fact that I don't have a handle to give you right now. Uh, so I am not the most proficient on Twitter. <laughs> But uh, but uh, if if you look up João Chavez there João B Chavez I think that's my handle or something like that I'm there um, and uh, uh, <laughs> oh yeah find me cool sounds good well Joe I really appreciate you making time and, and speaking to us your expertise is needed maybe more than ever so keep doing your work uh, people like me look to what you're doing to to inform our community you know of what's going on and i appreciate your time thank you so much thank you tim appreciate you appreciate the invitation it was a pleasure all the best to you <laughs>